may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Good morning, and welcome to Strength to Strength. Uh, glad to have all of you with us this morning, and especially you, Stephen. Glad to have you with us. Thank How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well this morning. We just finished summer term yesterday. Uh, it was a really good term. Um, and towards the last uh, last three days, I got a little less sleep than normal, trying to get all the grades in and everything. Yep. So that's at uh, Faith Builders in yes. uh, Guys Mills, Pennsylvania. Yes, it is. All right. And how long have you been uh, teaching there? Uh, this uh, this will be starting my 24th year in the, uh, in in August. All right. So you've made that a career. Yes, I love All right. it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's great. So, uh, yeah, we're looking forward to a talk this morning from Stephen on um, on his book. And the topic of the book is Overcoming Evil God's Way. So I think what we'll do here is uh, we'll begin with a prayer and then we'll turn the time over to you. Okay. All right. So uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessings to us. We thank you for this uh, time here where we can... Um, sharpen each other, where we can learn from each other, and we thank you for um, what Stephen brings here to the table. We pray that you would uh, bless his life, bless his teaching, and um, yeah, bless our time here now as as he speaks. Uh, may the technology work well, and uh, thank you for your goodness to us and allowing us in this time to be ambassadors for you mm-hmm. in, uh, in the various ways in which we uh, have available to us. Pray that you would um, bless our lives and uh may your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven we pray in jesus name amen amen all right so we're going to give the time here to to stephen and uh, if you have questions along the way just uh, make a note of them or put them in the chat and we will get to those uh, at the end so the time is yours stephen go ahead okay well um as as i think about um where the church is today and where society is today i see two big needs and um, the first one is, what does it mean to be a human? Now, I'm not going to talk about that today, but if just think about society. We don't, uh, people just are acting as though there is no uh, reality to what it means to be a human being. Uh, recently, uh, two of the appointees of the president were questioned in, in Congress, what is a woman? And I think both of, the, both of the appointees were women and said they didn't know how to define that. So um, we're in a place of utter confusion as far as what we are that though that's and that's somewhat connected to the second big thing and that's what i want to talk about today what does it mean uh to live the way god intends us to live and uh the key thought here is love god expects us first of all to love him with everything that we are and then secondly to love everyone else as we love ourselves and at the heart of non-resist that's at the heart of non-resistance so um i wanted to talk a little bit first of all how i came to this position uh because um i think it's really i i my major subject is history knowing a little bit about the uh person that wrote the history for instance is helpful and so anyway i was uh, raised catholic and um and went to catholic school as a child uh, at 17 i went to a uh, Baptist church and was converted. And, and, uh, it's interesting. God, I think works with us where we are. And at that point, there were two things that happened in my life. And that was, I knew that God, um, 
doesn't want Christians to kill. And this was right at the end of the Vietnam War. In fact, I was at the I was in the last draft. Uh, my num- my number was low, and so I wasn't drafted. But um, I I had been a patriotic young man, and uh, and so I wake up the day after uh, I gave my life to God, and I knew Christians don't kill. That now that's not all of non-resistance, but that's what I knew at that point. And I also knew God wanted me to, or I, I found anyway, the urge to be, uh, to serve the Lord in ministry. And I was a young Catholic man. So um, at first I uh, looked into going to uh, Catholic seminary. And in fact, uh, I did uh, for, for a, a, a while, but um, I, w- I got discouraged uh, by some of the teaching there. And went back home and discussed my situation with some friends, some Christian friends. And uh, the ones that were the most helpful for me uh, were my beachy friends. They didn't necessarily give me an answer to some of the questions I had at that point. See, I was struggling with um, some very important Catholic doctrines like what they believe happens at communion. And it wasn't necessarily that they answered my question as much as we had a really good talk and it was helpful for me to, to think some things through. And so I actually started going to the Beachy Church and um, within a couple of months had joined it, had uh, joined the church, uh, got baptized and, and, and all. Uh, and as time went on, then my understanding of non-resistance uh, grew. So it went from simply realizing a person doesn't, uh, a, a, not a person, but a Christian doesn't kill to recognizing that this has a whole lot more meaning and that's just continued to grow over time. Um, I have uh, become a little bit concerned or I became concerned uh, once we got into, once the United States got into the wars in the Middle East, I got concerned about what seemed like a laxity among our people as far as understanding non-resistance. Um, and I, yeah, I, I um, the, the uh, Sunday after the, the war in uh, Iraq started, um, some of the young men at church said, did you see what our missiles could do? And that kind of startled me a little bit. Our missiles? Well, I know what they meant, but I started to realize as I talked to people that not everyone is completely on board. They don't understand. And I think that it, my, my guess is that after the United States started to have a volunteer army in 1973, I think that uh, maybe our uh, leadership didn't preach about non-resistance as much. And I think a lot of young people hadn't heard it and really didn't, or hadn't heard it much and didn't really know uh, what it meant. And so um, that got me started to thinking about, um, well, we know what the Bible says. So I I came up with a presentation, uh, several evening presentation about the history of non-resistance. And then we had, we, we, um, our country experienced uh, the Afghan war. And it seemed to me still that, that we, our people still needed more um, uh, to hear more about non-resistance. And so I, I got the opportunity to take a half a year off and write this book on non-resistance. And um, anyway, uh, Uh, the, um, oh, and I just want to say this, there, there's going to be a revision of the book coming out this summer. 
Uh, and this is what the cover is supposed to look like. I don't know if you can see that or not. It's not really that important, but that's coming out uh, this summer. I don't have an exact date. And in the book, I look at non-resistance uh, biblically and historically. And uh, so that's what I'd like uh, to talk about um, today, but maybe first um, a little bit more on the fact that it seems that, that we're losing, our own people are losing non-resistance. And there's an irony here because I am finding more openness among Christians who aren't Anabaptists because they see something's not working quite right. And in their settings, well, maybe it's not working quite right in our setting too. So we, we uh, have some need here too. But I do think that uh, we often don't understand the two kingdom concept, which the early Anabaptists uh, saw in the scriptures. And uh, that became kind of the heart of their, of their approach to um, their society and to government and the military. So it seems to me we've, we've, uh, don't have as clear a concept of that as we should. And uh, the way I would like it's the way I would like to uh, phrase, uh, phrase what is important about what the early church saw and what the Anabaptists saw. First thing is how do you form a church? I know that doesn't sound like it's about non-resistance, but it really is. Uh, how do you form a church in most in, in every religion, as far as I know, other than Christianity? you are um, you become a member through birth and uh, christianity is the only religion that says you must choose to become a christian and so uh the early church did that unfortunately there came a time when it started going towards uh, infant baptism and be that became the norm and that changes everything the uh if you do have a church though that is formed the right way through the baptism of uh people who have decisively chosen to follow the Lord, then there's a certain inherent um, uh, aspect to what, what life is going to look like for a person like that. And um, it's, I, I would call that um, separation to God or holiness. That's just inherent in this kind of a situation. And I would see that holiness as having three aspects, not we call it nonconformity, non-accumulation and non-resistance. And so um, if a church doesn't have these things, if it, if it doesn't know about uh, baptism as the decisive choice of an, of an adult uh, and then the implications of that, then it's going to be hard to really understand or see where non-resistance comes in. But, uh, and I, as far as, I'm not gonna talk about non-conformity or uh, non-accumulation, but non-resistance is uh, not just we don't go to war, we don't kill people, we don't go to court, we don't take people to court. But the way I like to think about it is non-resistance is actually coming to see what God's vision for the world is. And we all know what that is. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. And uh, so non-resistance is actually uh getting to know what God's vision for the world is and then get, becoming part of it, cooperating with that. And that's exactly what the Anabaptists did. That vision is about redemption. It's about restoration. It's about um, healing. And the Anabaptists during the Reformation were the only group that actually were uh, evangel evangel 
evangelistic. And, um, and that's, it was because I think, because they were, they had this vision that God gave them. Uh, they had a non-resistant vision or a vision of love. If that, uh, helps a person to think about it. So one more thing about this, uh, thinking about the two kingdoms and thinking about the inherent aspects of giving your life to the Lord as an adult, and specifically about non-resistance, we are ambassadors. You already mentioned that in your prayer. We are ambassadors for God, this other kingdom. And so we tell the kingdom we're not in what the other kingdom expects or, or how it can help and things like that. But we, we're not supposed to get involved in their uh, way of handling things. We can, we, we're, we're supposed to talk to them. We're supposed to call them to conversion. Uh, and we can, I think, even give them suggestions about, if they, especially if they ask, about uh, issues that come up uh, for all of us. But we're, that's something that we're not supposed to be directly involved in. We're ambassadors. Our um, energy goes into telling the world what God's, uh, who God is and what he expects of us. Um, there's, there's another thing that I'd like to mention here. Um, uh, you know, non-resistance is a hard thing. Now I know we, we can only do it with God's grace, but, but it, you know, when you think about it, if a person isn't a believer, he'll, he'll probably think this is impossible. Even believers though, uh, are resistant to this whole idea. It's it's a little bit scary. Um, and we want to control, I think most of us think this way, we want to control our lives as much as possible. And non-resistance or living in love the way God wants us to is really a risk. It's, it's saying we're willing to put our lives into God's hands and do whatever that means. And that's one reason I think that... Um, uh, it's it's uh, it's being lost by some of our own people, and why a lot of other people resist the idea, at least at first. But there is, if, if I'm correct, that the way a church is formed is through uh, a decisive uh, choice by an individual after he's heard the gospel, and then there's something inherent in that. Uh, if we if we take the time to think about how to talk about this. Uh, to others, I think it becomes very um, appealing, and it starts to draw people. Um, if they're not in the Lord, I think this opens people up to the possibility of hearing what the gospel is about. It's it's not the um, it's not the uh, aggressive um, political uh, action that's happening a, a lot among Christians today. And uh, non-Christians are seeing this and are being turned off by this. <clears throat> anyway, um, I think another another reason that uh, we're we're perhaps um, not as strong in the concept of non-resistance as we could be or should be, uh, we have um, looked a lot to American evangelicalism as far as the things we read. And I, uh, you know, I'm not saying evangelicals aren't Christians or anything like that. But um, they, they seldom, or if ever, have a concept that uh, Christians are supposed to uh, approach people with uh, sacrificial love. Um, and so as we read more of their books, uh, we um, become, we, we perhaps uh, replace what is foundational in Anabaptism. And by Anabaptism, I simply mean Christianity 
as understood both by the early church and the Anabaptists, and, and uh, not, not something that's uh, just uh, something we made up, but rather that was rediscovered by the Anabaptists, not made up by us, but rediscovered. So it's sort of shorthand for actually what's biblical Christianity. But uh, I think we've sometimes uh, read so much of uh, the American evangelical uh, books that we, we're kind of losing our own foundation, which I would say is much more solidly biblical. And uh, anyway, so... Um, uh, looking at my notes a little bit. <clears throat> oh, and as I... I want to say one more thing that I found very interesting. Some friends of mine, a couple of friends of mine, many years back, soon after President Carter ceased to be president, went to his church and sat in his Sunday school and afterwards had a chance to talk with him a little bit. And there were two very interesting things that came out of this, this opportunity to talk to the president. And one of them was that he uh, said one thing he was very proud of as president was that his administration had not assassinated any world leaders. And by that, I mean either uh, leaders of government or leaders of um, some, some kind of uh, group like um, ISIS or um, Al-Qaeda. And um, basically every president before him and every president after him has done that. And that was something he was proud of. He also said that he had that his administration had done that. Uh, he also said that he he has come to see that you really can't be a Christian and the president at the same time. Now I didn't hear what he said. Um, I don't think he was saying he wasn't a Christian. I think he was saying he now has a, has had a chance to stand back and and he sees that um, this does these two things really don't work well together. And he and he recognized that uh, my friends were Mennonite. And that's why he uh, talked to them about this, I think. But, you know, I wish that uh, he would make this more commonly known that really uh, the, the government isn't really a place for the Christian. It, the, the, the kinds of things that you need to do and the kinds of skills you need to have don't fit. <laughs> don't fit this. Uh, the two kingdoms don't fit in that particular uh, case. So anyway, now I'd like to... Um, Think about the present time. Our, uh, I think, in our circles, there there is a kind of a rockiness to our understanding of um, non-resistance, and it seems to me that uh, as we absorb more of the American spirit, I think direct uh, in directly through uh, evangelicalism, that mindset has uh, overtaken or um, undermined uh, the biblical mindset. And we see it in the fact that so many of our people are being uh, drawn into politics uh, nowadays. Uh, and this is something that the American, uh, American evangelicals have been doing for quite a while. And now we're getting uh, drawn into that. Uh, and I can understand it. Um, I, when I was uh, first a Christian uh, and still a Catholic, I um, voted and I was motivated by the um, anti-abortion uh, movement. Uh, you know, that's that right when I became, a, well, soon after I became a Christian, uh, Roe v. Wade came into effect. And so I was very motivated by that. But I also came to see um, 
both through uh, reading the scriptures, reading uh, some Anabaptist writings on non-resistance, and also by ex the experience of talking to people on the other side and recognizing that they saw me and the other people who are um, politically working against uh, uh, abortion uh, and, and identifying as Christians, they saw us as trying to impose Christian morality on them. And that, that not only turned them off towards us, but it also turned them off against uh, Jesus. It was like building a wall between them and Jesus. What they saw was these are the Christians trying to impose their morality on me, not trying to win them to the Lord, but rather to impose our, um, our morality on them. And so uh, I, I really have come to regret that. I, I feel that that was a huge mistake in my life. And I'm trying to help our people see that this isn't the way to go. But right now we see people being drawn both directions, to the right and to the left. And um, like I said, I can understand that. I, I know what that feels like. You want to do something. But unfortunately, the political route is not, well, I don't mean unfortunately, the political route is not the way. Uh, politics is um, always imposed on people or, the, or uh, in politics, whatever's going to be done is imposed on people. Christianity is about calling people to follow the Lord. And um, it's not meant to be uh, imposed. And, and uh, so anyway, um, let's see. <clears throat> Anyway, we, do, we need to recapture the, the vision we Anabaptists do. And, and I think we're at a, at a moment when people are willing to listen. Let me talk a little bit about uh, the biblical aspect of non-resistance and a little bit about uh, the historical aspect, and then a little bit about how I see the situation today. You know, the Old Testament is often seen as not being non-resistant. I personally believe that God works with people where they are. That's what he did with me. Um, not everybody, when they give their life to the Lord, right away realizes they want uh, that they should uh, be non-resistance. It, 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 it depends on the person. And for me, this was where God needed to work. And also the thing about the, uh, serving him. as a, uh, I, I thought I wanted to be a Catholic priest. And then I, I realized later that I'm already a priest. So that was, uh, so I was already um, doing that part or learning how to do that part better. But, you know, the Old Testament is about God giving us the freedom to choose to love him and worship him. And we didn't do that. And the first couple of chapters of Genesis show us how we just became worse and worse and God then gave us a new start by wiping out the world except for Noah and his family. But even then, there's still the corruption in the human heart. And God, that is, it's right after the fall in chapter 9 of Genesis, where God instituted government to restrain us, to keep us from plunging back into the depths of depravity that we did just before the flood. So um, the Old Testament, a lot of it is about restraining uh, that that impulse downward towards uh, becoming worse and worse. And um, God also gave us uh, or gave a certain people, uh, the Jewish people, the law and the covenant to shape them, to, to make them the kind of people to whom the Messiah could come. And this was a long 
rough journey. I mean, everybody, all of us know the Old Testament and his people kept rebelling against him, kept uh, falling away, then coming back. But uh, eventually, after um, about, uh, from I'm thinking about from uh, Abraham's time till um, the time of Jesus, uh, so there's something like uh, 18,000 years that God works with us to bring us to that point where the Messiah can come. The Old Testament has a lot of um, uh, hints and clues and sometimes outright statements about what God, God's heart really is. So God works with these people where they are, and he even you know, lets them sometimes do things that aren't his real heart, but he's getting them to the place where the Messiah can come and tell them actually what uh, what what God really wants from His people. Uh, in the New Testament, the Messiah comes. Uh, he's really different than what the Jewish people expected. His own disciples don't fully understand what's going on until after the resurrection and the ascension and Pentecost. Um, but here, it's in the New Testament. The two kingdoms are clearly talked about. There are several places where it talks about we. Um, in Colossians, it talks about being uh, translated from uh, the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his dear son. And uh, there are many places where it makes that whole thing very clear that there are two kingdoms and they don't overlap. And if you try to make them overlap, you have problems. Um, so uh, one other thing that another thing that we learn in the New Testament is we do have a fight. You know, um, we men want to do something and uh, we want to uh, do something that's hard. And literally we do have a fight, but it's not the fight that the other kingdom looks at. It is, uh, it is um, first of all, an inward struggle to um, let God's spirit and his grace work in us. As we hear what God has done for us, as we hear that he's calling us to this non-resistant uh, vision um, there's a struggle. Uh, we, we have to let God work in us. We have spiritual strongholds in us that through the spirit can be overturned and we can become more and more and more like Christ. And so the first, the first uh, struggle or fight for us is an inward one. And then it's an outward one as well. Uh, helping our own brothers and sisters uh, understand what God is calling us to. And then um, I think making clear to the unbeliever what it is God is calling us to, because everyone, every human being in the world wants the things that God wants to give us. He's put that in us. The problem is in the world, they um, seek the fulfillment of those desires God's given us in the wrong place. And if we can help them see not just non-resistance, but this whole plan that God has for us and how it's for our good, that wakes, awakens something in people. So I think secondly, um, helping brothers and sisters to grow in non-resistance and helping the world to recognize that Christianity isn't just simply a set of laws. These are the rules you have to do, but rather it's God calling us to a life that is, um, that is full. Uh, Jesus said he came to give us life and life abundant and, uh, uh, I, we, we need to try to uh, see ways to express that to others. To, uh, I think that will draw them. And I think non-resistance, especially in a violent world that we live in, 
uh, will at least open people up. It, it'll spark their curiosity, but I think it will draw them that, that, to the Prince of Peace. And um, so anyway, and then one last thing as far as the New Testament, sometimes uh, I already talked about how the, the church is a group of people. It's a body. It's the body of Christ who have chosen to follow him and become part of this and inherent in that is a certain lifestyle of, of holiness or separation unto God. Unfortunately, sometimes somebody within the church uh, falls away. And um, one of the things the Anabaptist emphasized is the other Christians in Europe, when, uh, when there needed to be discipline, they used the government and sometimes they used it to execute people. The Anabaptists made a very clear statement that there is a time when discipline needs to happen, but it's only excommunication. And that's always for the good of the person to bring him back. Uh, if a person was, is executed for being a heretic, there's no way that he can come back. And so um, the, that's something the Anabaptists emphasize. And maybe it's also another place where at least some of our churches are uh, becoming more like the society around us and not willing to... Um, use, this is a tool God has given the church, and sometimes we're not willing to use all of the tools God's given us. I want to switch now to think about church history a little bit, and um, all these things are, are dealt with in the book in more thorough detail, but uh, in the early church, uh, like I said, they understood uh, that this is, this is something different than any other religion, it, it is something where you hear the gospel message, you recognize your own need, and you choose to follow the Lord. And then that's going to have this uh, inherent um, uh, call on our lives, namely that we live holy lives. And part of that would be that we live a life of love, of sacrificial love, or of, um, or of uh, 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 non-resistance. And the interesting thing is we have a significant number of writings and inscriptions by the Christians in the first 300 years of the church's history. And they are clearly non-resistant. These people were willing to lay their lives down. Um, Tertullian, uh, who, was, uh, who did a lot of writing for the church, um, said very clearly, uh, to, he was, he was uh, addressing the empire, I think the emperor in, uh, directly, uh, and he said, you know, we're, we're everywhere. We're in the marketplace. We're, we, we're everywhere in the, in the empire. We're in the cities. We're in the country. And um, we could rise up against you if we chose. But that's part of what it means to be a Christian, that we, though you persecute us, we don't rise up against you. So that's just one mention. The church was very, very consistently non-resistant all the way through. Constantine came along. Um, he became the emperor of a united Roman Empire in 324, and he began to favor the church. And, uh, you know, he ended the last persecution, and it was the worst persecution. How would you feel if you had been living then? And um, all of a sudden, uh, you didn't have to worry anymore about if people find out I'm a believer uh, because I, I might lose my life or at the very least be persecuted. Um, all of that changed uh, rather quickly. And, you know, I, 
I think we need to think about one thing a, a historian wants people to think is, so what would it been, have been like for me if I were there? Sometimes we look at people in the past and say, oh, that was not a wise choice. Well, they don't have as much um, information as we do. And so we, I think we need to think about what would we have done back then if we had experienced that intense persecution, then uh, Constantine comes along ends the persecution, and begins to favor the church. He doesn't make the church uh, the state religion. That happens about, mm, that happens about uh, 60 years after uh, he, he becomes ruler of the United Empire. But he does, uh, he does start that, that tr- attempt to bring together those two kingdoms, to get them to overlap. And so this is where I would say that the problem starts, the Christians start to compromise. And, and I don't think they always recognize what they were. I don't think they recognize what they were doing. They didn't have the past to look at. They did have the scriptures, but you know, God, uh, the scriptures tell us God uses governments. And, and um, so they, they were, um, they were uh, open to this, to, to um, the kind of, of uh, favor that Constantine gave them, but it was, it, it led to compromise and eventually it led to um, the church and state completely working hand in hand. And when that happens, you, it corrupts both sides. The church uh, obviously isn't supposed to be involved in government or the military and the government um Maybe you could make an argument that uh, in some ways there were some improvements, but it also, um, it just, it got, it got derailed from what the God-given um, uh, tasks for the government were. And so I think both sides got um, badly affected by this, this overlap and eventual kind of bringing together of the, of the church and the state. In the Middle Ages, um, the, it had been very clear in the in the original in the early church that we don't go to war. In the Middle Ages, uh, Augustine came up with the just war theory in order to uh, help Christians see that there is a is a kind of war they oh, a real war that they can uh, participate in. So he gave the just war theory. Over time, infant baptism starts to replace uh, baptism of people that. Uh, choose to follow the Lord, and that's going to cause uh, immense problems because, um, well, you're, you we're supposed to baptize someone after they've chosen to follow the Lord, and and uh, that's that that actually died out by by 1100. Uh, we know pretty well that from that point on, um, infant baptism was practiced uh, throughout um, Europe, which is where. Uh, Christianity at that point was uh, found. Um, Eventually, that just war theory became the Crusades, which is a holy war, not just, just war says you defend yourself. Uh, Crusades or holy war say that God honors a person for fighting his war in this world. And um, so uh, church, the church was interfering with the state, the state was interfering with the church. And it led to immense corruption, which eventually brought on the Reformation. And so the Reformation, um, 
there were a lot of good changes that the Protestants came up with, but they kept infant baptism and they kept the union of church and state. And uh, so in some ways um, they, they, they shifted away from the corruption that had developed in the Catholic church, but they kept out of fear. They kept a couple of things that did not fit with the early church. The Anabaptists rediscover this. Uh, um, they, they, they hear the call to proclaim the gospel so that a person can see what his own state is and his need and God's solution for that. And then to form a church of, of dedicated believers willing to uh, disciple each other and willing to lay down their lives rather than to pick up the sword and defend themselves. So um, that, that uh, laying down of the distinctives that the early church had led to um, gradually more and more bad things within the church. And so we get the Reformation. Um, and so uh, the interesting thing is the, Reform the Reformers uh, felt that, um, that what the Anabaptists rediscovered and were proclaiming was too far. It would, it would rip society apart. They were used to a society where the church and state were intimately intertwined what would happen if we tried to take that apart? It'll rip the society's fabric. And so they were afraid to do that. But what would we, once again, what would we have done in that situation? Well, some people took the tr uh, path of truth and many of them died because of that. So, um, but they did also have that long history where we, we saw the early church and then we saw this gradual compromising and corruption. So they had something to operate on more than just uh, what they were experiencing at the moment. And so uh, we living 2000 years after Christ, we have a whole lot more of that. And we should be able to decisively understand the call to the church and with God's grace, live it. So um, I'm just so excited about what the Anabaptists rediscovered and their willingness to die for it. Today, um, what's the condition of the church? Well, we are living in a time of great temptation. I'm not saying that others weren't, but um, we live in a, in a society that emphasizes freedom. It emphasizes participate in the political process. That is a huge temptation. Um, you know, it was exactly the devil's temptation to Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he, the devil said, the devil offered him things to short circuit what God had, uh, what, what God wanted to do through Christ. Um, you know, if you were fall down and worship me, um, I'll give you these kingdoms. Well, um, that I think is exactly uh, the temptation that Christians face in today's world. It's not a world like this. Um, let's, well, let's go back to the um, Reformation. It's not the 16th century world where the government didn't care what you thought. Uh, we have elections. We have polling. Uh, the government, uh, at the very least, wants to make you think that it's doing what you want it to do. And so there's this great temptation for us to jump ahead and actually um, take a shortcut and go through the government and bring all these good things into being. Um, but it, it, it doesn't, it's not just a shortcut. Well, it's not a shortcut. It doesn't really get us to the place we want to be, but it does short circuit what it means to be a Christian. Taking this shortcut um, is a short, is a, um, 
short circuit in, in us as far as it makes us not work the right way uh, if we take that, that uh, temptation, if we take the route of that temptation. Um, what we need to recover is um, commitment, commitment that is willing to stand clearly in opposition to what the Lord said, uh, to what the world says. Um, and it really speaks to the, to the world when we do that. If you remember back in 2006, um, a, a man in Lancaster killed some, some Amish girls at a school and, um, and uh, the way that both the girls responded and the way the, the Amish community responded um, just shook up people and made them stop and ask, what is going on? This is not normal. The forgiveness that was given, um, the Amish uh, were, the, were uh, the man who killed himself. And at his funeral, I think there were more Amish people than anybody else. And they told the man's wife, um, Please stay here in the community. We think it will be a, a way for us and for you to be healed quicker by staying. That's that's just not normal. That that is a real attempt to live out whatever whatever non-resistance means. Uh, it's not just our people though. In South Carolina, at Charleston, in a black church, um, a white uh, racist came in and to a Bible study one evening and eventually killed. Uh, a number of the people and he was put on trial. And um, after the trial, uh, the people that were affected who had lost uh, family um, spoke to him and they, they said, you know, we want your best. We, we, we don't want to hate you. Uh, we want your best. So it's not just Anabaptists that get this, but um, it, it's something the church in in the in the whole world needs to rediscover the way the Anabaptists did uh, rediscovered it in the um, uh, 16th century. Um, I think I think I, I think I want to uh, just wrap it up with uh, a little bit of a thought about so what could we do. What, what are we supposed to be doing in, in this world? Uh, first of all, um, thinking about our own people, we need to rediscover it ourselves, I think, and dig into what is it that God is asking uh, or actually telling us this is what you are to do. You're to be like Christ. And um, a key factor is this non-resistance. It's where, it's where um, our kingdom, I think, rubs up in a, in a kind of a in a way of friction with the other kingdom. Uh, we, can't, we can't support you in killing uh, or harming, but we can support you in other ways, and we actually want you to come over into this kingdom. So we need to relearn that. Uh, we need to um, learn to love um, the other the way we love ourselves. And, if, and maybe we can only do that. Well, I think maybe, we, yeah, we can only do that if we love God first of all. I think there's a big opportunity right now. I've been um, talking to friends who are not Anabaptists, and they're recognizing that um, somehow their tradition has has gotten off the rail in some areas, and uh, and some of them are are find what we believe appealing, but it's still, like I said earlier, scary. How can this work? Um, well, I had somebody say once, 
That's a good idea if it would just work. Um, we aren't called to uh, success. We're called to faithfulness. God will bring the, bring the success. Uh, and and so, sometimes uh, in the past, it has meant martyrdom. That doesn't mean failure. Um, it's, it's not something that, that we American Christians who live in, in ease um, like to think about. But uh, God can give us the strength. And in our setting, we're, we're going to have to face other things and martyrdom, at least right now. And God will give us the strength to do that. Uh, people might ostracize us, turn away from us, or they might even challenge us. Can, you know, would you, if I hit you, would you actually uh, not strike back? Um, and so anyway, we have an opportunity, I would say, to um, make the gospel, to make it help, to, to, it, the gospel shines. But if people see the non-resistant attitude in us and practice in us, it'll shine in a way that pagan eyes can see. And that's what we need. So I think um, I'll stop there and open it up for questions or, or, or a response, uh, whatever you want. All right, very well. Thank you, Stephen. So yeah, I've got a few questions here for you and uh, we're gonna open it up to the audience. So any of you can uh, share your questions as well. Yeah, so... Um, just wondering uh, what your perspective is of not only the time in which we live uh, now, but in the Old Testament, because oftentimes uh, people will refer to to that, and even you know the perplexities of how how much the other direction that was, particularly with the Canaanite conquest and so on. Any any thoughts on that? Well, I have a couple of thoughts. One of them is, as I said earlier, God works with people where they are. And so God actually let, this isn't directly the Canaanite question, but God, um, God didn't really want to give the Jewish people a king, at least not at the time they wanted it. But sometimes he would do things like that. God didn't want his people divorcing, but sometimes he allowed that. But even there, the Old, uh, the Old Testament says, I hate divorce. And what that, a lot of these things were restraints to hold back the people. Um, I would say that often when a subject comes up in the Bible, the first time it comes up, we see God's heart. Uh, I, I won't go into a whole lot of detail here, but I find it intriguing that the first time that somebody commits a sin that cannot be um, uh, dealt with personally, I can't say, I'm sorry, I offended you. I can't say, I'm sorry, I told you this lie. Um was the murder of Abel. And notice what God does. God, first of all, warned Cain that sin is at his door, but he can overcome it. And then when Cain killed his brother, God doesn't call for an execution. God protects Cain. And there can only be one reason, and that's so that Cain can come back, so Cain can repent. There we see God's heart. Now, the human heart is so corrupted that God gave the people government and, um, and the law to sh both to show them their own corruption, but also to, to try and restrain uh, what we would normally do um, if we just weren't given uh, the restraint of government or the restraint of the law. And uh, 
So God works very slowly and carefully with us to bring us to that place where the Messiah can come. Uh, and and you, you can see, uh, I, I like uh, Galatians 4.4, where it talks about at the right time that God sent his son. Well, anyway, so it took a while to get the people there where they could actually hear more clearly what was uh, what God uh, was doing in Jesus. Uh, government has the responsibility of um, uh, using the sword. And at least during part of the um, Old Testament, God allowed his people to be part of the government. He makes it clear in the New Testament that these are two different spheres and that we are really a really good place to read about this is Romans 12 and 13, that we are to do these certain things and they all show love. And in the first couple of verses of 13, they, the government do these things, including bear the sword in the old Testament for a while. Sometimes God's people bore the sword and the Canaanites had become so corrupt that God um, used one people to um, to punish the the other people, and in this case the Jew, the um, Hebrews to punish the Canaanites. But um, this is once again this isn't God's heart. His heart is for God's His own people to be withdrawn from that and it's very clear in the new testament and the 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 anabaptists had a very interesting take on this they talked about the order of the father which is the old testament and and sometimes god's people bore the sword but then they talk about the order of the son which comes after he after jesus came to the earth and they make it very clear that god has made has taken the sword from christians we, we are not to bear the sword he makes it very very clear and then um, they argued that he even took the sword away from his original people, the Jewish people, because soon after um, Christ, the Jewish people fight a war with, um, with uh, the Romans, and they lose their sovereignty and they lose the, the um, need for bearing the sword. And at least our early church, um, our early uh, Anabaptist uh, fathers uh, thought that God was making it very clear. I don't want my people to bear the sword. He allowed certain things in the Old Testament that were not his perfect will. He was restraining us and reshaping us uh, so that we could hear when the Messiah came. He, he uh, could have called legions of angels, but he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He did the Father's will, which was for him to die. And, and I, I don't mean to um, imply that our death is like the Lord's death, but if, if um, we, are, we find ourselves in a place that we have to lay our lives down, um, he's calling us to that, to, to, to that willingness to do his will and to, to be able to trust whatever happens to us, we are still in his hands. Wow, fascinating. Yeah, that's uh, that's very interesting. I hadn't um, considered or, or heard the thought before that uh, God had Israel uh, be subjected to the Romans in some sense, taking away their need to to bear a sword. We don't read the early Anabaptists enough. <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, that's excellent. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. All right, so we'd like to open it up here for um, 
the audience uh, who would have a question that you would like to to ask at this time and maybe um, I'll just uh, bring in another question here for you while people are thinking about that so you use the word uh, non-resistance a lot um, of course in the Beatitudes, Jesus said, um, you know, used the term about peacemaking. Uh, just wondered if there's a, a, a selection that, yeah, a reason for that selection. Yes, there there is. Okay. Uh, um, you know, the word um, in Latin, the word there, peacemaker, is where we get our word pacifist. It's a perfectly good word. But in 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 a, since since the just war theory times and and uh, after the uh, early church times, pacifism has has a different feel than non-resistance. Uh, typically, we could use the same word. It's it's a wonderful word. I love it. But typically, pacifists um, say God God uh, God and we do not like violence. But the interesting thing is. Uh, the vast majority of people who are pacifists will fight at, at a certain time. Now, I'm not saying there aren't some people who, are, who call themselves pacifists and go the non-resistant route. But non-resistance means I do not offer violence back for the violence offered to me ever. It's, okay, pacifism could mean that. Uh, what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, obviously, is, is very good. But I'm thinking about what um, how it's usually used in the world. And, um, you know, uh, two, two little historical uh, stories. One is that uh, before the before this American Civil War, there were many pacifist um, organizations in the United States, and there was a pacifist church called the Quakers. Well, the war, the Civil War came to be seen as a very just war because they, they were... Um, doing away with a gross injustice in our country, slavery. And so um, there's at least one uh, general who uh, in the Northern Army who had been a Quaker. And, uh, and many of those, uh, in fact, I think all of the uh, pacifist organizations said this is a just war. One more, uh, one more um, historical story. Uh, there was a worldwide pacifist uh, organization in, just before World War One, and just before the war started, they had planned on a um, meeting, a worldwide meeting, in the southern German city of Constance. So that's about it's in the southern part of Germany. It's pretty far. Uh, yeah. It's anyway. So there's a very interesting story about some um, American and British pacifists that were taking the train and then they, the train stopped. They were going to Germany and, and, and all the things were building up to, to the beginning of World War I. And so they found out that the train stopped because it had been planning to cross into Germany north of Switzerland to go to Constance. Well, the, the rails were uh, taken up so that, that uh, the trains couldn't go that way anymore. So they were rerouted into Switzerland and then Constance just happens to be a German city on the, on the other side of a lake. So actually, it's, uh, Constance is surrounded by a lake on the north and Switzerland on the south. And so they got in that way because Switzerland is a neutral country. And they met 
and they um, decided that uh, this is a just war, and they went back home uh, encouraging their governments to fight against the Kaiser and that injustice that um, he, he uh, favored. Uh, so um, I could love the word pacifist, uh, but it's not used the way non-resistance is. So I, I use non-resistance um, to indicate a complete, uh, and, I, and I write about this in the book, a complete rejection of coercion and violence on my part. Uh, uh, I can't think of his name, but uh, the president of Sattler College has a really neat little saying, uh, no, uh, no blood. So, Zach Johnson. Yes. Yeah. Zach Johnson. I couldn't yep. think of his first name. Uh, no blood, but our blood. I may be saying it a little bit wrong, but that is exactly what a, a pacifist Christian ought to be. So I use the word non-resistance because historically pacifist organizations will, most of them will uh, say at a certain point that this is, is just and will fight. And there's a reason for that. Most of those Christians still accept that, that uh, molding together of the, of the church and the state, at least at some level. And so they want to impose Christian morality on the state and that, that just never works. <clears throat> um, there was one other thing I was gonna say about that, but I can't remember now. I can't remember what the other thing was that I wanted to uh, say about uh, that word, oh, um, no, I can't, I can't get, I had something else in my head at the beginning, but now it's gone. But can you see uh, the way the world uses the word, um, just, it, it, it brings, if, if somebody says I'm a pacifist, what do you think about it? I would talk to him and find out if he's actually non-resistant, you know, so. Yeah, fascinating. All right. So, um, what questions uh, would anyone like to ask here? Go ahead. Yes, yeah, Stephen. I just recently read that that book, and I really appreciate it. But I think, and as you mentioned, something that you were in Israel while you're writing that book. I just yes. curious how long were you in Israel? Um. That's kind of an interesting story. I'll tell you what happened. Uh, and if you, this, this gets too long, you can always take it out but, uh, of the recorded thing. But um, I, I, um, my best friend told me that we need more writers. We conservative Anabaptists need more writers. And he said, you should write a book. And I said, I don't sense that as a, a gift God's given me. But in, uh, in the early 2000s, when the United States kept getting into wars in, in the Middle East. And I saw that there's still some need for our own young people to understand this. It felt, I felt this internal urge, which isn't natural for me to write a book on non-resistance. And so I went, I was working for uh, Stephen Brubaker and I went to him and I asked, can I, here at Faith Builders, he was my uh, boss. And I said, um, you said I should write a book. I didn't think it's, uh, some, a skill I have, but I feel this internal uh, desire, for, and I think it's from God to give it a try. And so he said, sure, you can do that. And the interesting thing is that only he and I knew this, and uh, I got a call from a friend who wanted to go to Israel, 
to learn the language so he could read the Bible in the, uh, the Old Testament in the original language. So I, I asked him, when is, when's he going to go? And it was exactly the time that I, I was asking my work here at Faith Builders to be off for uh, about a half a year. And that's exactly what he wanted to do. So anyway, so I feel like God said, okay, if you're going to um, give this a try, then I'll give you this opportunity to experience Israel, something I, I had never been there before. And um, so I was there for seven months. It didn't take quite seven months to write it, but um, that was the time period that, that we had. We left, the, we arrived, I think, on the 1st of June, and we left uh, somewhere in the middle of uh, December. So we weren't, weren't there quite seven months. Uh, but anyway, uh, so, and while we were there, Interestingly enough, well, this the, the the nickel mine road incident among the Amish happened, where the, those girls were killed while I was there. So I got to I would read uh, American newspapers, European newspapers, and uh, Israeli newspapers that were in English on uh, online while I was there to see what's happening, and it was so fascinating. Everywhere in the world, people were talking about this and wondering what is this all about. Also, while while I was there. Um, Hezbollah, which was is a tor- terrorist organization up in Lebanon, was shooting for about a month, shot rockets into uh, Israel. So there was a little war actually while we while we were there, and all of the people, all of the tur- tourists left during that time. Um, but that that just kind of um, confirmed in in my mind that this was uh, something that needs to be done. A, a book that we can appreciate uh, that that tells us. Um, you know, what our history is and what the biblical warrant is for non-resistance. So I was there a little bit over six months. If you guys don't have a question, I do. (laughs) Um, How do you find it in your own churches? Are your young people getting this? Are they understanding the call that God has on our lives? in this specific area. And the fascinating thing to me is that um, I, I actually think that not the positive word for non-resistance is love and that what, what it's directing us towards is getting that vision that God has for the world, namely to redeem the world, to restore it, to bring it back to him, to heal it. And like I said, that's one reason that early Anabaptists were evangel- evangelistic. They, they got it. They didn't write about it that way, but they got that this is what God's calling us to. And it means that we should go out there and tell others who might even kill us about the gospel. But I'm wondering, uh, is it understood um, in your churches? Is it, is it uh, getting stronger or is it fading? All right. Anyone have anything to answer there? So I can I can just um, speak for for myself. Um, so I I grew up um, as a as a Mennonite, and um, but it was actually I I have been very heavily influenced by evangelical writers uh, from from my teens for um, twenty years. Uh, that's that's pretty much all I all I read, and. Um, yeah, so I guess um, 
you know, while I was in a, you know, a church that was um, non-resistant, uh, it wasn't really something I, I held to. I was uh, very devoted to the Republican Party and, and so on. Um, yeah, so that's um, kind of a long journey and a long story uh, mm-hmm. out of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, part of that was the, the Just War debate. I was at the Just War debate, and uh, ah. it was um, pretty pretty mo- monumental to me. In Boston. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah. That, that I was going to be there too, but okay, uh, I was asked to talk about non-resistance at Martindale in okay. Lancaster County. Okay. So I was there the same time that uh, I talked about non-resistance when when you were up in Boston. Fair. Yeah, yeah. very interesting. Yeah, so I, I was there, and then uh, um, Scroll Publishing. David Purcell uh, was there and they had a table. They were handing out um, an audio CD called The Kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, that was where I was introduced to, to this whole thing. And uh, yeah, it's been a journey from there, but um, it's uh, one that I've, I've certainly bought into uh, what you're teaching here. And it's uh, how I identify as now what I see as being the historic faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that non-resistance is sort of an add-on. Right. Uh, you know, it's actually at the heart of the gospel. Uh, I didn't see this at first, but as, I, as, as I've grown, I, I've come to see that, what, what I've already said it, that non-resistance is, this, is the love God wants us to have. And if we have that love, we'll understand his vision for other people. And it makes our, our approach to other people completely different. Yeah. about the young people in your church? Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I wish I had a, a better perception of this. Um, I would say for sure they're not where I was. Um, yeah, so I, I, think, uh, I think there's, um, I think we're at a better place now than, than where I was uh, mm-hmm. 20 years ago for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, I don't, I don't think that uh, we've attained for sure. <laughs> So I think there's uh, room to grow, most definitely. Well, I just, I just really encourage all of you that um, this isn't an Anabaptist idea. This is a biblical idea. It's right at the heart of the gospel. And, and uh, try to help people see that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I like those points and that question. And, and the question, how we're doing with evangelism, that's a good soul-searching question because I think it's something that we Anabaptists are weak on and we're going to have to work on some more. I think we've become complacent and maybe the job looks too large. And so we've sort of cooled off, but there is tremendous opportunities in at least our country, Canada, we have a tremendous amount of diverse cultures and and ethnicities of people coming together. Uh, We have a lot of people coming from India and Middle East, um, and now even from Ukraine too. So we have tremendous opportunity to show these people that come with very little um, to show them love and support and giving them things to help them get started to their life in Canada, because it is, it is harder than they imagined Uh, the cost of living um, is greater than they expected and weren't told about the difficulty of, of actually surviving in Canada and has actually even 
and push some back to their original countries. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a way to maybe look into at least the, of trying to connect with these people when they come and, and reach them early on so that they get the impression that there are people that care and want to help. And I think there's some hands-on things we should be doing as Anabaptists. I also like um, the idea that someone told you to write a book because it feels like we as Anabaptist people have been a little weak on our ap apologetics and, and we need to tell the world and we need to tell each other in written form what it means to be a follower of Christ and how to have that nonviolent, um, non-resistant uh, teaching right at its core. Mm -hmm. um, so here's a question for you. I, I had this continuing ongoing discussion with a good friend of mine who's Baptist in background, and he's very um, um, pro-reformed theology. And so his thing is he just doesn't understand why we are so uh, strong on the two kingdom concept in fact, he calls us, and this is the first I heard this term, but he calls us R2Ks. It's a term that they have in their own circles that I had never heard of before. Maybe some of you here have, but an R2K in their minds is a radically two kingdom. And I said, hey, I'll own that term. I love it. I'm an R2K. And uh, he would say, how in the world can you live that out when say 75% or, or even over 50% of the world is truly followers of Christ. How can you have that many people and not be involved in government um, with some shape or form? And uh, it's this hypothetical question that I often run into with this discussion with these reformed theology people. And how, how do we answer that question? Uh, the, they called you an R2K? Yes. Okay, the 2K is two kingdoms. What's yeah. the R? Radically. Oh, radical. Kingdoms. Okay. Okay. Well, I like that. I, I'll yeah. be you know, um, well, you know what? One of the things I'd ask them is, do you like medieval Europe? Let's say year 1500. That was uh, Catholic. I am, I'm, I was from the Catholics. I am not anti-Catholic. They have many, many good things, but in 1500, almost everybody in Europe recognized things are not what they need to be, and uh, except for the popes. And, and so there was a, uh, uh, it was ready for a change. And um, uh, oh, so, so uh, my point would be, I, I would ask you if they like that, and they're going to say no. Mm. Oh, my, that was terrible. Are you going to do any better? Why, why should I think you're going to do better? Now, you could turn an argument against me, but we have a long history. We'll do better. Um, if, these two, if, it, if these two kingdoms really are meant to be separate, and I think I can show that from the scriptures themselves, then bringing them back together is going to slowly bring that corruption back. And I would even just say, look at what I, I am against participation in either party. But I'm going to take something that just recently happened in the States, and that is how so many uh, conservative Christians of many different stripes um, have supported President Trump and uh, even took part in that uh, riot or whatever you want to call it that happened January 6th. And is this what we're called to? I, I actually heard from some friends of mine that some Anabaptists were there. I don't think they broke into the... Uh, capital, but they had a communion service there. Now that strikes me at, and, and they don't 
seem to care uh, anything about how this man presents himself or how he lives. I, I can't understand that. It feels like they are, are putting something ahead of their Christianity. Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, so that to me is a sign of that we will do, not do any better. We're going to we, politics, you know, politics is an, a, is a, is an attempt to impose yourself on others. And, and uh, one of the things that about American and Canadian politics is how gentle it is, at least at first. So um, government has a sword, but, um, and, and uh, a medieval warrior would, would wear armor and he would have a, 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 a male, um, I mean, chain mail glove on his hand. And he bore the sword with that. Well, that take that that uh, hand that has that uh, male glove on it, uh, you know, chain mail, which is for war to protect your hand. In the United States and Canada, it's covered up with a very nice velvet glove. We experience government coercion very gently until we resist too long, and then it gets a little harder. Um, and so we we are um, trained to um, experience government, we experience government usually in a gentle way. That's not the way people in Africa, parts of Asia, parts of other, other parts of the world, that's not how they experience it. But if we resist enough, we, the glove comes off, the velvet com- glove comes off and the sword gets picked up. That's inherent in the system. It's inherent in it. It will always corrupt us. And I think we corrupt it. I think we, we, we bring in ideas that don't belong there. So um, now I'm not saying we can't interact. If the government asks us what we think about a thing, I think we can talk to them about it, but we got to be careful. So I am utterly convinced that, uh, that uh, you can show from the new Testament, these two things should be separate. Um, And uh, when you bring them back together, you're going to get a rerun of medieval Europe. And it ain't going to be pretty. (laughs) Well, look, uh, President Putin in in Russia is making a big part of his, I'll call it propaganda, that the West has corrupted itself and has turned away from Christianity. But Russia is is maintaining its Christian heritage. Well, that is that that that's inevitable when you try to bring those two things together, that you're going to use Christianity as a veil. Uh, to cover up your um, violence, as it, because it's a holy thing now, you're use, you're doing something God wants, uh, and so you can justify yourself. Anyway, I don't know if that is is helpful or not, but um, uh, it seems to me that it is a hypothetical. But if we look back in the past, and if we look at what's happening today, I don't think we're going to do any better. I think we'll do something different if, mm-hmm. if we try to bring the church and state together, but it will be horrible. Hmm. Just like the past was, and just like uh, you know, and I'm, uh, um, some Christians go for the other party, and that can't be justified either. And somehow they think that they're more tolerant or more loving. It's not that. It's not what we're called. What they are calling tolerance and loving isn't what we're called to as Christians. Hmm. So I just want to be clear. I I think we need to keep out of politics completely. I'm not anti-Republican. I'm not anti-Democrat. Both parties say things that kind of sound good. Some of the things uh, we're not to be drawn to that. I don't know about up in Canada. I don't know what happens up there politically.
Yeah, it's very similar. Thanks for that answer. I, I really appreciate it. And I think, too, we, I just tell him, too, that what, the way we do church is different. We don't force our, our people to do certain mm-hmm. things. We ask them to, and if they cannot support us, then we maybe ask them, especially if they're living in sin, to remove themselves from our presence. But we yeah. wouldn't, that's how we would govern ourselves the whole way through. And so we wouldn't force mm-hmm. ourselves on others. But I'm waiting to hear what John D has. I see he unmuted himself. <laughs> well, I think it, it, it all comes back. Hi, to John. Them. Excuse me. Hi, John. Excuse me. Hello, hello. <laughs> I think it all comes back to, to a kingdom message. Uh, what is the kingdom of God? As you read Jesus, it's obvious he's restoring God's original purpose for society. And uh, a picture of what the world would look like if that had not been lost. And uh, this is a very important part of it. And people, when they say to me, well, suppose everybody's a Christian. All right. Suppose everybody in uh, uh, Germany had been true Christians and had been non-resistant. They, most of them were Lutherans. But because the church lost that, they were not. But if they had been, Hitler would have had no army. Suppose this message had been taken to Russia a thousand years ago, and the people in Russia would have been true Christians, non-accumulation of wealth, non-resistance, what appeal would the Bolsheviks have had to those to that society? Uh, those are the types of things I think we need to hold before people. Uh, and, and one of the strongest parts of our testimony in speaking to people who call from the billboards is that we are not involved in politics because they know that there's something wrong with somebody who supports a man like Trump. And, and so when I say, well, I'm not involved, and I explain that God wants me to demonstrate his original society, to interact with the kingdoms of this world, but not to get involved because it involves coercion, which completely spoils our message, that makes sense to them. And on the other side, uh, we can't agree with what President Biden is doing. Uh, it's a total um, uh, uh, turning away from what the scriptures tell us it means to be a human. So it's not just the violence or, or the, the, the kind of action on the one side. It's, it's the other side has problems, huge problems, too. Well, the interesting thing about the other side is they're appealing to the desire of every heart for an equitable society. Yeah. yeah. And the kingdom of God gives you that. Yes. Yes. And it's interesting that when I talk about the kingdom of God, they sometimes say, I bet you voted for Bernie Sanders. (laughs) 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 And I explained to them, yeah, the the kingdom of God represents the very ideals these people are presenting, but because they do not deal with the issue of selfishness, it turns into a nightmare. But in the kingdom of heaven, we have a king who deals with our selfishness, and this all can be done voluntarily, and it's a beautiful uh, example of what society is supposed to be. I like how you brought out uh, that that what Jesus is doing is bringing us back to God's original intention for society. And that fits with what I was saying about government only starts after the flood in Genesis 9. All theologians will agree to that. And that's where God said to restrain the, your evil heart, I'm going to give some of you the sword. That's not his, his perfect intention. It was, no. it was previous. So I really like how you framed that. And then you talked about the Lutherans in, uh, in uh, Germany. Uh, there were some that resisted him. Yes, and there were some, Yeah, and there were some Catholics who did too. But you know what? 
the Mennonites by that point had completely lost non-resistance. And I don't think there was anybody who said no. And I have, I had a friend, I don't think he's alive anymore, a German um, Mennonite minister. Uh, I would have uh, interacted with him in the 80s. And so he was a young man uh, during that time. And he said, we didn't have that teaching. And uh, Germany felt so badly treated after World War I that we felt like Hitler was, was, was saving us. He was lifting us up. They had the kind of mindset that I've seen in too many American Christians today. Um, whether it's Mr. Trump is lifting us up or, or Mr. Biden is, is appealing to the equitable um, aspect of our hearts. But, but I think that's very interesting that socialism tells me that in every heart, there's that desire for an equitable society. Yeah, yeah. And they can never deliver on it. They no. turn it into a nightmare of a few <laughs> elites making everybody else equally miserable while they pocket the cash. So yeah. <laughs> that's how that always ends. Yeah. Uh, the most beautiful example of non-resistance in the Old Testament is when Elisha led the Syrian army into Samaria. And the king said, shall we smite? Well, Syria had been a thorn in their flesh for years. Here was the chance finally to destroy the whole Syrian army. And Elisha says, no, feed these men and send them home to their master. And it says that Syria did not cause them any problems for many years after that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, That's the most beautiful example of non-resistance in the Old Testament. But the human heart in its corruption says, smite them. And that will give us many years of peace. And it doesn't work. It causes more anger, more hatred. My, uh, I lived in Israel for those uh, six and a half months, and I saw lots of smiting and, and mistreatment uh, of the uh, Israelis to the Arabs, and all it has done is cause more and more hatred and strife. Yes, amen. Well, it's been a fascinating conversation. And uh, we want to thank you, Stephen, for joining us this morning. Uh, if you would lead us in a prayer uh, to close and then just uh, have a comment after, after that. So go ahead. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for how you love us and how you um, shaped uh, mankind before Jesus came so that they could hear his message. And I thank you for um, what he has called us to. Uh, to that, or your original plan. Uh, Father, I just ask you would help um, all Christians to hear that uh, and to be open to that so that we could actually draw more and more people into your kingdom. Uh, thank you for the way you love us. And Father, we ask you to help us love others the way we should. We um, thank you that uh, you have done everything we need and help us to respond by, obe by obeying uh, you and your, your will. I ask this in Jesus' name and in the power of the Spirit. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, thank you again, Stephen. So in two weeks from now, uh, Strength of Strength will reconvene for the next talk, which is called Creating a Healthy Church Culture. Creating a Healthy Church Culture by Bill Shiley. He is from Chambersburg, Pennsylvania. And uh, you're all welcome back then. All right. Uh, Lord bless you all. And uh, see you again. Thank you. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.